Maybe some of you have heard of the woman who accompanied her husband to his doctor's appointment. Some of you are affirming. Afterward, the doctor took the wife aside in private and said, I need you to know that your husband is going to die. It's most certain your husband is going to die unless you do the following. Every day, when he wakes up, he should wake up to a nice cooked breakfast. Every day, you should meet him at home for lunch, and when he arrives, his lunch should be waiting for him. Every day, when he gets home from work, there should be a nice, well-balanced, healthy meal for him to sit down and enjoy. Don't overburden him with stressful conversation. Also, you need to keep the house spotless and clean so that he doesn't get exposed to any threatening germs. And finally, you need to be available at his every whim. She nodded her head. She understood. She went out to the car, sat down with her husband. He said, what did the doctor say? And she said rather swiftly, he said, you're going to die. (laughs) A relatively humorous antidote as an icebreaker for something that's pretty serious and The serious matter is for us to continue considering this thing called, that I'm calling, disaster-proofing the family. We started this a number of weeks ago, right before the holiday season, and we're going to return today with part two. And We covered the wives and their responsibility as far as disaster-proofing the family is concerned. And This morning we're going to only begin talking about the husbands. And so the elbows begin. I can almost see them. I didn't look, but I know that it's probably happening. You say disaster-proofing the family. That seems a little bit overboard, maybe, to use such a title, to use such a description. I don't think it's overboard at all. I think the family is either prone to disaster or in a state of disaster, just left in and of itself. Let me show you why. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. Theologically, from a biblical perspective, we can know that the family left alone, apart from the grace of God, apart from you being actively involved in disaster-proofing it, has got disaster written all over it. It is prone to disaster because the family is not immune to the effects of the fall. Adam and Eve led the entire human race into sin. The fall of mankind, we call it. And as a result of that sin and them being our leaders, our forefathers, way, way back when... Even the family is prone to disaster. It's not immune. Genesis 3.15, you see God pronouncing His judgment even upon the family. Here it is, this great source of fulfillment, companionship, blessing, partnership, as God created it. But then look what happened. God says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. There may be other ramifications, but initially it's talking about a man and a woman. It's talking about Adam and Eve, I believe. And there is going to be tension. There is going to be a problem there. Verse 16 says, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. And then notice here, yet your desire will be for your husband. That's not a desire for him to lovingly lead you. That's not a a sexual, intimate desire. That was there before, and it was positive. Whatever this is, it's bad. There is this desire to assume that leadership role, to usurp that God-given leadership, and we looked at that in more detail last time. And then what does it say regarding the husband, which is our focus for this morning? And he will rule over you. That's new information. That's not positive. God gave the the, the entire world, the, the animal kingdom, and He gave the created order to rule over with His partner, wife, helper, Eve. Now all of a sudden, it says He's going to rule over her. It's not describing loving leadership. He's not describing that at all. There's something that's not to be there. There's something that was not there before. There's a certain harshness. There's been confusion because of sin. We need to disaster-proof the family. That right there is reason enough because of what is built into the family because of sin. 
And as I said last time, you can just look around at the world that we live in. You can look around at the the culture that we are a part of. And the family is a disaster. And it seems to go in cycles. All of a sudden, you have more and more people coming to know Christ and and they're busy disaster-proofing and they're following God's roles and things can be good for a culture for a time. And then that cycles out and all of a sudden, you've got problems, countless heartaches, and more hearts slated for heartache. I offered those kinds of things last time I went this morning. You say, this is pretty bad. Yeah, that's why we need a disaster proof. That's why we need to do something about it. And by the grace of God, He doesn't just pronounce judgment and say, look, now there's going to be problems. By the grace of God, there are solutions to these problems. There's ways for us to overcome these issues. There's ways for, for you to have hope in your family. There's ways for me to have hope in my family and to have a successful marriage, a successful family life. And that's what we're busy working on here together by the kindness of God. It brings us to Ephesians 5. And if you have a Bible, you can find Ephesians 5. This is where we'll camp out this morning. This is where we'll be. In fact, we'll not get past one verse this morning. Guys, you're really going to get it today. And all God's women said, Amen. That's good. Just get comfortable and sit down and we'll even have more for next time. But we've been studying Ephesians as a church and right now we're in chapter 5 and we'll begin studying this morning verses 25 through 33. And what I would like to point out to you are five divine lessons for husbands. Five lessons for husbands that come from God that can help you know your responsibility in your home. And if I said five, there are four. Four of them. Number one, loving your wife is your duty. That's the first divine lesson. Loving your wife is your duty. Maybe you want to be first person with this and make it real applicable and you can write down, loving my wife is my duty. I understand that some of you are single. I've already thought about how to include you and maybe include you next time more specifically. I haven't come to any conclusions about that. But the bottom line is many of you will be married someday, so it's applicable to you. Some of you ladies, obviously this doesn't apply, but it can help you to know how to hound your husband. No, I don't mean that. You need to go back to the previous section and deal with your standalone role. It can help you, if you're single, to know what kind of man to look for, what kind of man to pray for. Or maybe you are a single person and you're not going to ever be married or never be married again. You can be busy praying for other people. There's a ministry for all of us. It's a message for all of us. The second divine lesson for husbands is, that we'll look at this morning, loving your wife is to be Christ-like. It is to be Christ-like. So you could write down, I am to love my wife in a Christ-like manner. And then three and four, we'll see next time. Let's go ahead and read the entire section, though, together. If you have your Bible, let's go ahead and read verses 20. 5 through 33, you can pick your Bible up with me and let's go ahead and read that to set the stage for what God has in store for husbands. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. First lesson, loving your wife is your duty, husbands. It is your duty. And how about this? It's not your duty because the guy who married you said it was your duty. 
It's not your duty because your parents said or did not tell you. Either or, it is your duty. It is your duty, men, husbands, husbands husbands-to-be. It is your duty because God says to do it. I am not here to tell you today that you should love your wife. I am here to tell you that God says you should love your wife. It's a command. It says it right there, does it not? It says, God saying His Word. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. And just in case we had the football game up too loud to hear it the first time, He says it two more times. He says it in verse 28 and He says it in verse 23. Or in verse 33. He's making sure we get the point. Love your wives. Command mode. Not an option. It's an imperative. Now what I want to do, I mean, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's your duty. Let's move on to the next one. But I'm pretty hard-headed, and I imagine others who join me in the male species tend to be a little hard-headed too. And so what we're going to do is spend a little bit of time looking at some specifics. And maybe since I'm talking to men and we tend to be mechanical, some of us in one degree or another, we'll talk about some of the specifications. Let's check the spec sheet on this love. We're going to study this, men. What are the specs when it comes to me having to love my wife? I think there's a place for getting to love your wife. It's a privilege, but we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about the have to. Let's look at some specifics, if you would. Let's dig a little bit deeper. I have a number of them. You don't need to number them, though. I'll just give them to you as we go. But I do want to roll up our sleeves a bit and and say, let's dig a bit and understand what is this? This love is a conscious act of the will. This love, Christian love, love for your wife, is a conscious act of your will. We know that because it's a command. It's something you are being told to do. God insists that you must love your wife. So that means it's more than a feeling when you feel like it. It's more than an emotion. I hope it's not less than a feeling. I hope it's not less than an emotion. But it, but it is so much more than that. It's a command. It is a conscious act of the will. Jesus, and we'll get to this, when He died for the church and even decided that He was going to do that, in somehow this inner trinitarian decision-making before time ever began, we don't know how all that works, but He didn't feel like doing it, I'm sure. He, he, didn't, he wasn't in an emotional state where somehow he just sort of felt like dying for the sins of the world and loving them. He made a conscious decision, a conscious act of the will to do this. And so, men, we have to get on that program. God says, why do we do it? I don't feel like doing it. Or I do feel like doing it. God says, love your wife. Why do I love my wife? I hope for lots of reasons. But if I can't find any other reason... I'm sure some of you could help me. At the end of the day, it's because God says. And I'm going to make up my mind that I'm going to do what God says because I'm a Christian. Another spec on this spec sheet for love is that this love is a constant love. And we know that from the verse 2 because it's in what's called the present tense. It doesn't really come out in my English translation. But husbands love continually, habitually, as a pattern. This is what you're characterized by. This is what you do all the time. This isn't on Valentine's Day. Husbands, always and forever, be in a state of loving your wife. And you could, you could translate it that way if you needed to. This is when I feel like loving my wife. This is when I don't feel like loving my wife. Uh, this is when I, there's personal pleasure involved for me and when there's not. Uh, this is when I'm at my best or I'm at my worst. This is when my wife is at her best or at her worst. This is when I'm tired and when I'm not tired, when I'm sick and when I'm not sick, when she's tired and not tired, when she's sick, when she's not sick, when I'm poor or when I'm rich or I'm middle class. This is when I get fired from my job. This is when I get a promotion from my job. This is when I'm under a lot of stress and I'm not under a lot of stress. This is 
And the list goes on. You get the point, right? You could just go on and on and on and on and on. Whatever kind of psychoses you're having in your life or not, God says, love your wife. It's a constant. And I need to hear that. Another speck here is that this love is, a, is the Christian thing to do. This is nothing less than the Christian thing to do. In a sense, I want to say it's nothing more than the Christian thing to do, but certainly you have a unique relationship with your wife. But really what we're talking about here, essentially, men, God is not asking you to do anything by saying this that He's not asking you to do for every other person who's a Christian. I know there's something unique there, but let's just catch the point first. This is essentially a Christian act. Where have we learned that? We've learned that in Ephesians. I hope we've learned that in Ephesians. Let's just, why don't you go ahead and go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians has taught us, if it's taught us anything, that God loves, and we're supposed to love. And not just our wives. We're supposed to love everyone. And it's this sacrificial kind of love, this Christian kind of love. And so I'm just going to go on sort of a rapid survey of what we've seen in Ephesians so that we can support this notion that this is just as the Christian thing to do. It says in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, toward the end of verse 4, it says, In love He, God, predestined us to adoption as sons. There's God loving. Okay, let's move on to chapter 3, verse 17. It says there, partially into the verse, it says, regarding us as believers, being rooted and grounded in love. Let's move on to chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. It develops even more. In chapter 4, we have that hinge of Ephesians where it all turns to practical. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, Christians, to walk, to conduct yourself, how? In a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Notice, showing tolerance for one another, for all other Christians, in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There it is. Fundamentally, we love as Christians. And then we move on to chapter 4, verse 15, where it says, We are to therefore be speaking the truth in love. Then we go to 4.16, that the growth of the body happens. Why? For the building up of itself in love. Then we go to chapter 5, verse 2, and we're told to walk in love. And we see it all over the place in this book. Christians are supposed to love. And so God, in that sense, isn't asking you or me to do anything different. And here, this is the one that is my bride. This is the one that I have pledged myself to publicly before others, that she is my wife, and I am her husband. But fundamentally, he's not asking you to do anything more than he's asking you to do with everybody. And that's when it becomes tragic when we can love others and we can't love our wife. We're not acting Christian at all. Now we move beyond Ephesians, still looking at some specks of this love in Ephesians 5. You go to Galatians, and all of a sudden in chapter 5 you learn that the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit that indwells every believer, the fruit of the Spirit is what? First on the list, love. It's the Christian thing to do. It's, just, it's what we do. In a sense, we can't help ourselves. Because it's the fruit. It's the, it's the outpouring of, of God's Spirit living in us. And then another speck of this kind of love we're learning about in Ephesians is that this love is extreme. This love is radical. This love goes to the edge and does things that if you didn't know better, you'd say are crazy. I mean, you're going to do things, men, for this wife of yours, if you're going to love her, that are radical. Some people might want to have you committed. They're so radical. And we know this based upon what God says about love in 1 Corinthians 13, don't we? I mean, have you ever looked at 1 Corinthians 13 in that light? I want, I want to ask you to do that with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you're in Ephesians, you just move your way backward a, a few books in the Bible. Galatians is the one right before it. Then 2 Corinthians. Then 1 Corinthians. This is asking you to go to the edge of the cliff. And by way of application for your wife. This is extreme. This isn't mediocre. God hasn't said, love your wife. And oh yeah, that's just kind of this half in, half out, wishy-washy, mediocre kind of non-committal apathy. 
It says in verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not, act, uh, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. does not take into account a wrong suffered. does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails, and we'll stop there. We, we, could have gotten past, we couldn't have gotten past the first statement, could we? Love is patient. Without saying, that's radical. To the naked spiritual eye, this is crazy. But God says, Christian husband, <laughs> love your wife. And that has extreme written all over it. Furthermore, another speck of this kind of love is, this kind of love for your wife is... Let's put it this way, is an essential part, essential component. Again, trying to use terms that some of you guys can relate to. It is is an essential component to your Christian life. It is an essential component to your Christian life. And I bring this up because sometimes we don't think in these terms. We compartmentalize and we say, well, this is my spiritual life. This is a spiritual component of my life, and, and these are my secular components of my life. That's ridiculous. That's not how God thinks. That's not a Christian way to think. I tend to think, hmm, well, Bible study, prayer, uh, fellowship, singing, those are spiritual things. Home life, work life, married life, you know, those things are, it's just family life. They're different. Don't think that way. That's not how God thinks. That's not how God thinks at all. Because if He thought that way, He wouldn't be saying in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives. It's in the Bible, in the spiritual book. It's telling you to love your wife. It's fundamental. It's essential. It's right there. That's the kind of perspective God wants us to have. I mean, this is fundamental for me. I remember when I got a, a, a packet, a, a pastoral questionnaire. I was still finishing theological training, talking to different churches, and I got a packet in the mail from a church, and it was in Red Lodge, Montana. By the grace of God, I guess we didn't go there. But uh, actually, it would have been a nice ski resort town, so I guess the pastor would get a lift ticket, and we'd do lots of skiing, and what could be wrong with that? But anyhow, we didn't go there. But I filled out this application, and we were dialoguing on the phone, and they sent somebody to come and talk to me, and, and on it was going. But one of the questions, and I'm not, I'm not knocking the question, because I think we tend to ask it. In fact, I think I would ask this now just to see what somebody says. One of the questions was something along the lines of, how do you rate your priorities regarding your family, regarding the church and service and ministry, and regarding God? Those kinds, that's something like that, as I recall. I wasn't trying to be cute. I wasn't trying to be funny. I wasn't trying to be malicious. But my answer was something along the lines of, I don't remember how it was said. This sounds too off-handed. I, I, don't, I basically said in more words than this, I don't think in those terms. I don't rate God, wife, ministry. Because they're all related. Because if I'm not loving my wife, then my relationship with God is messed up. Right? Because he tells me to love my wife. Uh, If I'm not loving my wife, then I don't really have an effective ministry. Because part of my ministry is to lead my home and to love my wife, right? I mean, you see how they're all intertwined and connected, and you just don't think that way. That's That's an unbiblical way to think. So this is an essential part of your Christian life. It's part of your spirituality, men. It doesn't matter how many promise keepers meetings you go to or don't go to. It doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how many Bible studies you go to or teach. If you're not loving your wife, you've got big problems. Because that should rate right up there with you going to a Bible study. It's right up there. So let's try to get rid of this, this pagan kind of worldview of thinking compartmentally and say, God wants all of me all the time. And guess what? It shows up in the way I love my wife. And it shows up in the way I treat my children. It shows up in the way I serve. And it shows up everywhere. And we can't simply compartmentalize. 
think that requires a shift in our thinking. All of them are essential to God. This sort of causes my brain to race over to 1 Peter. Maybe some of you have already raced over there. Let's go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Don't ever think that your married life is separate from your spiritual life, quote-unquote, because they're interconnected. And men, we can fall into that trap. I think women can fall into that trap too, but we're not dealing with them this morning. Let's, let's make sure we understand. Prayer is good and a must. Bible study is good and a must. Service is good and a must. But loving your wife is good and a must, and you put it on the same level. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, many of you knew exactly where I was going. He doesn't use the word love here, but certainly they're overlapping. It says, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way. Certainly that includes love. There's no question about that. As with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Guys, let's not fool ourselves. You're going to go yell at your wife, treat her unkindly, and then you're going to go pray? You can look at that first two ways, by the way. It's going to cause you to not pray. Or you're going to pray, and guess what? God doesn't want those prayers. And both would be true. Oh, just had a major blow up, and let's go worship God. When we get comfortable doing that, we've got big problems. I would plead with you and urge you and challenge you and pastor you and say, don't think that way. Stop putting prayer above your relationship with your wife or Bible study or whatever else. It's right up there. It's the same. Both are spiritual disciplines. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Keep it all in balance. You don't say, well, you know what? I've got to love my wife today, so I'm not going to serve. <laughs> I've got to love my wife today, so I'm, you know, for the next year I'm busy loving my wife. Can't be involved at the church, Pastor. <laughs> Thanks for the sermon. No, don't take it out of context. But please, let it say what it says, and please think like a Christian. I love telling people the will of God for their life. Kind of make a joke out of it sometimes and say, let me tell you God's will for your life. I'm not going to joke this time. Men, let me tell you God's will for your life. Still love the woman that God has given you to be your wife. And to love her radically. To love her consistently, not just on Valentine's Day and other holidays. To, 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 to love her, we're going to see, sacrificially, consciously. I know the statement is overused, but I'm going to use it here. If loving your wife were a crime, would there be enough evidence for you to be convicted? Love your wives habitually, continually, consciously, radically. Pretty intense. Let's move on to the second lesson for husbands to learn as if we don't have enough to chew on now. Loving our wife is to be Christ-like. It says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. We saw that. How? How, how, how should they love them? Just as, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That's what I mean by Christ-like. Just as. As Familiar passage. In fact, when I started reading this passage this morning, it just came right off my tongue. It was so easy to read this passage. One reason is because I've never done a wedding where I haven't read it. I've read this passage so many times, it's amazing. Some of you probably have been to a lot of weddings and, and have never been to a wedding where you haven't heard it. And so we're real comfortable with it. We hear it all the time. You know what? We need to love our wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Da, 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 da. I mean, it's just, we got it down. 
I mean, you could, you could have preached the sermon so far. I got it. But just because we're familiar with it doesn't mean, number one, we understand it, and it doesn't mean, number two, we do it. So we're going to spend some time talking about what it means, and we're going to spend some time focusing on being convicted by it. Maybe this should be my next wedding message. <laughs> I think the weddings are already radical enough. We'll just leave them alone. Many would assume after reading that verse, well, you know what that means? That means that I need to be willing to die for my wife if necessary. I think you're on to something. That's a great start. You get about 50%. But usually we're done with it. And most of you men, I would imagine, have enough chivalry in your bones... That if someone were to break into your house and threaten the, wife of, the life of your wife at gunpoint, and you could do it, you would jump in and you would take the bullet for her. I think it's fair to say most of you men would do that. Most unbelievers would do that, I think. But what we're talking about, of you loving your wife in a Christ-like way, isn't anything less than that, but it's a lot more than that. What Jesus did for us was more than chivalrous. It was more than heroic. Not less, but it certainly was more than that. It's way past chivalry. Let me explain what I mean. Christ's death required far more than the physical death of a human being. He was human, but He was divine And certainly because of that, as the sinless one, he didn't deserve death in any way, shape, or form. Now all of a sudden, the comparison is more intense. You love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? He wasn't a mere man. He didn't even deserve to be on the earth. That was an act of grace. That was an act of compassion and kindness. And he certainly didn't deserve to die. His death brought upon him by his fellow man total humiliation. Make sure you include that when you're thinking about this verse and what it means. When Christ came to earth, even in his life, he he opened himself up to absolute and total humiliation by his peers, by the authorities, by people who were under him. And then ultimate humiliation on the cross. There He was, the naked one, mocked, spit upon. And then, beyond human humiliation, what? He he experiences the, the, the full cup of God's wrath. He didn't deserve that. He didn't deserve to be on the cross. He didn't deserve to experience the wrath. And not only did He just die on the cross, and don't stone me as a heretic for saying, just die... But he wasn't a mere human being dying on a cross is a good example. He was on the cross experiencing the full wrath of God for the sins of the world. Intense, grieving, horrid, nasty. Didn't deserve any of it. He had perfect union, perfect fellowship with the Father, and he voluntarily said, I will go and I will do that. Now take that and transfer that to Ephesians 5 when you hear God say, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. He didn't just give His life in in, in a human sense. He gave it as a substitute for many sinners whom He should never have been dying for as far as justice is concerned. And now when I take my refreshed understanding perhaps, maybe we should call it that, And I take that and I I put that into Ephesians 5 where it belongs. It means something far more, doesn't it? It's not just taking a bullet for your wife if necessary. This is humiliation if necessary. Maybe I should leave off the if necessary part. Uh, This is suffering. This is mocking, perhaps. This is whatever. This is total humility. How about, like, like it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, humble, your, humble yourself. He humbled himself. It's humility. 
And what did he do? Philippians 2, 3 to 5. He saw our interests as most important. There it is, guys. Study Philippians chapter 2 and the humility, humility of Christ. And, and he saw our interests as more important as his own. And he was willing to suffer. And he said, I'm going to do this for them even though they don't deserve it. And take that and take all of your theology. Go to the end of Matthew. Read about the cross. Go to the Gospels. Read, gather all of the data you can about the cross. Go to, go to Romans chapter 5. Go to, go to Romans 3. Go to Romans 4. Go to uh, all the different passages you can think of about the cross. And take that and make sure you include that when you're studying Ephesians 5. And now we're past weddings. And simple familiarity with verses. Now it carries the punch that I think it was intended to carry. This is the point of comparison. It's past heroism. And now all of a sudden, death blow to Pat's pride. Because the comparison is Jesus and His death for Pat. Bottom line is, God has called you as a man to go to excessive lengths to love your wife. Didn't Christ go to excessive lengths? Absolutely. Another extremely pertinent point when it comes to this notion of just as Christ is the fact that it was gracious. It was gracious and it was at the same time unconditional. Let's talk about that. As we're reading Ephesians 5, we need to make a footnote or a note in our margin and say, this was Christ's death for me was gracious. Therefore, my love for my wife should be gracious. It was unconditional. Love for my wife should be unconditional. What this does is it, it, it swiftly hushes any notion of me saying to you, yeah, but you don't understand what she did. You, you should be married to my wife. Whoosh, done. As soon as you really look at the cross, there's going to be none of that. Why? Because His death was gracious. What does that mean? His love was gracious. We didn't earn it. We didn't earn it. We did not earn the death of Jesus. And so my wife doesn't need to earn my love. That's the implication of Ephesians 5. It's better and it's nice and it's enjoyable when there is reciprocal love and we exchange that. But she doesn't need to earn it in any way. As soon as I say one word to try to justify my lack of love for my wife, I've said one word too many, if not two. Talk to guys counseling them or whatever, and as soon as one word comes out of that man's mouth to justify his lack of love for his wife, he said one too many words. Because there's no justification. Absolutely nothing that my wife does, good or bad, should change my love for her. If Christ is the example. Jesus didn't die for an attractive submissive, loving bride. Did He? Unless you have pretty messed up theology, you'll say no. He died for sinners who were not seeking to please Him, who were not seeking to submit to Him, who were not attractive to Him. They were not godly. I love it by the providence of God that Ephesians 2 is in our Bibles. It's in Ephesians that we're studying. Let's go to Ephesians 2. It's all right in this book, and I know I beat the drum over and over again. I'm going to keep doing it. Here we are, studying Ephesians 5. It's about husbands and wives. But if you don't have an understanding of Ephesians 2, you're not going to get it. If you don't have the theology worked out, you're not going to get it. That's why we have 1, 2, and 3, and then we learn how to do it. So maybe you're just joining us. Maybe you've forgotten But as we're dealing with Ephesians 5 and husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church, let's say, hmm, what was the church like when He died for her? Oh, Ephesians 2 tells us. No coincidence that it's outlined for us. Ephesians 2.1 And you were, speaking of Christians who, before they were Christians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, so you're demonically influenced, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly, formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And we were all okay with that when we were dealing with it theologically. And then we learn, and we're so glad for those great two words in the Bible, the next verse, but God! Oh, see, salvation is by grace alone. There's nothing you could do to earn it. We, we were not the spotless bride. We were the harlot. Uh, we were demonically influenced. We were spiritually dead, and God is gracious, and, and He intervenes. And I, that's where it's, I love that. I get excited talking about it again. But men... Don't you dare leave that there now that we're in Ephesians 5. Just run your little tail back to Ephesians 2 and make sure you understand that was the state of the bride before she was the bride. So when the Bible says, love your wife just as Christ loved the church, you're loving her as an act of grace, not because she's earned it. And now it becomes profound. When Christ died for me, and you, I was as undeserving as could possibly, possibly, possibly be. And here, it says, love your wife just as Christ loved the church. Doesn't matter how bad your wife is, because she will never be as bad as you were in Christ's eyes when He died for you, right? Your wife could be a drunk. Your wife could look nothing like the woman you married. Your wife could be lazy. Your wife could be a gossip. Your wife could be a liar. Your wife could be whatever you want to say. And guess what? When you compare her actions with your spiritual condition when Christ died for you, they don't even compare. It's saying you can love anyone. She's your wife. Not that you can, but you must. So, men, let's not insult Christ by thanking Him for dying for us while we were yet sinners, as the Bible says, and then withholding love from our wives. That is about the ugliest thing that I could ever do, and it's the ugliest thing that you could ever do. That is mocking Christ. That is not thankful. It doesn't matter how much or how little she yells, screams, spends, drinks, sits, sleeps, gains, cooks, or whatever else. I love her just as Christ loved the church. And so that means sacrifice, humility, humiliation. It's unconditional. Even if she's unlovely, just as I was unlovely, I love her. Obviously, if she's acting sinfully, you deal with that on a biblical basis. You don't say, well, it doesn't matter, she's sinning, because I'm supposed to love her. No, you lovingly confront her for her sin, because Matthew 18 would command you to do that. But your love is to be without fluctuation. Now, some of you who hear this message, I don't think there's very many of you, but let's just say you do have a rotten wife. I say some of you who hear this message because I'm sure it's someone who lives somewhere else, not here. Let's just say you do have a bad wife. Let's just say she is ungodly. Doesn't change. I can't say, oh, I know what you're going through. I think I have a great wife. And any of you who really know me, you know I got the better end of the deal, right? Amen, yeah. <laughs> you got a bad wife? I've got a counselor for you to go see. I think he can relate better than I can, so I'm going to send you to a counselor. The good thing about this counselor, he's written all of his, all of his instructions down. He won't talk back to you, so you can just go on and on and on, like counselees like to do. His name is Hosea. You can read about him in the Bible, in a book called Hosea. 
He was called to love his wife too. You know the catch with his wife? Number one, her name was Gomer. (laughs) And number two, she was a whore. Called a lover. You probably don't have that problem. Pretty intense. But the best cure is to go to Ephesians 5 and deal with Christ and, and to focus on the cross and to learn about the cross. And In fact, I'll go so far as to say, and I don't want to get this wrong, so I'm going to read it, that to the degree that you understand the death Christ died for you, you will love your wife. I believe that to the degree that you understand the death that Christ died for you, you will love your wife. Doesn't that make sense? You could maybe write a dissertation on the atonement, on redemption, on propitiation, on substitution, on imputation, but you don't really get it if you don't love your wife. Because if you really get it, you understand Christ's death for you and who you were, you're going to love your wife. It's going to show up. So, man, if you want to be Christ-like, and that's the goal of every Christian, you've got to love your wife, and you've got to put it on the same plane as Bible study, prayer, another spiritual discipline, love, starting in the home. I want to wrap up with some application, as if this hasn't been applicable. How do we do this, guys? <laughs> How are we going to do this? I know the right thing to do. I just have a hard time doing it. I don't think you need to read something about women being from Venus and men from Mars or some other nonsense like that. Here's a list. Number one, start by acknowledging your failure. Start by acknowledging your failure. I don't love my wife that way, just as. And that's going to mean repentance. That's going to mean asking for forgiveness. Have you ever asked your wife to forgive you of something? I thought everybody did that. I guess I've been a pastor long enough to figure out some of you have never done that. Number two, embrace your calling in life and love her unconditionally, sacrificially, radically, and all of that. Maybe that should be number one. Come to grips with this is what God says. So don't monkey around and mess around. Here's God's will for your life and say, this is true. I embrace it. I need to do it. And then acknowledge your failure and shortcoming. Number three on my list, study the cross. (laughs) Study the cross. Study what happened there. Study who you were. Maybe a good study in, in, in Christology and homardiology. Let's be fancy. The study of Christ and the study of sin. Or anthropology, the study of humanity. But study it with a view toward, I'm going to apply this. It's going to change your life. It's going to change your love for your wife. Number four, don't try to do this in the flesh. You will fail. Don't try to do this in the flesh. I'm not a motivational speaker. Okay, guys, let's do it. Let's start and get fired up and and we're going to really go after it, man. All right, let's do a chant. We love our wives. Yes, we do. We love our wives. How about you? Oh, motivated. And you're going to get home and turn on the TV and it's all over. Maybe I should start a different profession, huh? Maybe not. (laughs) Ephesians 5.18. That's the crux of the issue. Don't try to do this in your flesh. What does Ephesians 5.18 say? 
I mean, this is, this is the, the engine that drives the car. This is what pushes us along. And we want to keep Ephesians in context. And, and here's what it says. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But here's the, the driving command of this section. But be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. Be totally filled up with the Spirit so that it, He controls you. And the cross-referencing Colossians has to do with, with God's Word. I mean, you've got to know what God's Word says. And you've got to be controlled by its Spirit. And you've got to be moved by the Spirit. It's not for me to G you all up and, and then somehow you're going to pull it off. It's got to be submitting to God's Spirit under His Word and saying, I'm going to do what you say. God, control me with your Spirit and help me to do these things. Number five, work on consistency. Be consistent. I've said it multiple times. I'll say it again. This is not a Valentine's sermon. This is everyday stuff. Be consistent. Work on it every day. You can go buy roses today, and that might be a great thing to do. But tomorrow's tomorrow, and the next day is the next day. Okay, I have some more practical tips, and we are out of time. I'm going to offer those two. Uh, well, I'll, I'll do it next week. Before you know it, it will be a three-parter. This is the study. This year we're studying men. <laughs> I just have some practical tips that I think might be helpful, and we'll just do them next time for sake of time. Uh, I've been breaking my own rule lately, my 45-minute rule, and that's not good. Spurgeon said if you preach longer than 45 to 50 minutes, you haven't studied hard enough. So I must have been really slacking lately because I've been, been abusing it. So let's go ahead and pray. Let's stand together. We're gonna, I know we're going to sing a song. And we'll meet again next week for... more exhortation to husbands. Let's pray. God, thank you for the fact that you have created marriage and you created it good and positive and blessed it. And Lord, we take all the blame for the sin because we know that in Adam we all sinned. And so, Lord, we're living with the consequences and we're living with the fallout. But we are utterly grateful for the fact that there is a solution and that we can disaster-proof our families by Your grace, through the power of Your Holy Spirit controlling us. And Lord, certainly it needs to start with the men. Whether we have submissive wives or wives who are not submissive or anything else, Lord, we have a duty and I pray that the men in this room would be changed as a result of what we've studied this morning and been exhorted with. And in the days to come, Lord, You would continue to shape us and to mold us and to cause us to... Humiliate ourselves, Lord, to humble ourselves and to face humility for our wives. God, we love you. We love you that you give us hope. I pray for those men who are struggling. I pray for their wives. I pray for the women who are really struggling with men who are not like this. Lord, just give them the extra measure of grace that they might need. Help them to rely upon you and help them to stand fast and stand faithful to you. And Lord, may it change for them. For your glory, for your exaltation, that's why we want to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen.